Thank you for being a listener of the Women in Tech podcast. To support the podcast and cheer us on, become an MVL Most Valuable Listener on our private feed where you'll have ad-free episodes and join us in Zoom meetups to meet other listeners of our podcast community. Go to womenintech.love, linked in the show notes. The tech industry provided many things that I wanted of where I wanted to go in my career of scale, different locations, global work, and yeah, traveling about and doing all those fun things. Three, two, one. My name is Esprit Devora, host of the Women in Tech show. The show means a lot to me. The reason why I wanted to create the Women in Tech show is I wanted to create a positive piece of content, something where people can listen and say, if she can do it, so can I. Hey, this is Adam Marks. I'm a tech founder, writer, and consultant, and I've been listening to the Women in Tech podcast for about three and a half years now. Esprit does a phenomenal job spotlighting female entrepreneurs from all over the world And one thing I love about the show is listening to their stories and how they've built their companies and organizations. We should always be pushing for representation and equality every time we go into the boardroom, every time we look for co-founders, every time we look to hire employees for our companies. So support representation and equality, support the Women in Tech podcast, follow me at AdamMarks13 on Twitter and on LinkedIn. And remember to always look for the orange sunglasses. To connect and collaborate with extraordinary women in tech around the world, remember to go to the Women in Tech Facebook group at womenintechvip.com. That's womenintechvip.com. The best business resource I have is my mentor's private Facebook group. I've never found a community that cares more about one another's success. It inspired me to create the same thing for podcasters. If you're a tech company or startup, Looking to grow your podcast audience, I created GetPodcastListeners.com, a private group specifically to discover how other podcasters have grown their audiences so we could do the same. Check out GetPodcastListeners.com. That's GetPodcastListeners.com. In today's personal spot, I'm going to be talking about focus. Oh my gosh. I've never been diagnosed with ADHD, but I'm sure I have it. I mean... (laughs) I'm sure I have. I'm I'm so all over the place. So what I use to focus, and I definitely need support in focusing, are a few things. One, Focusmate. Focusmate.com is amazing. They have 25-minute to 50-minute sessions, and that helps me focus. There's also Focus at Will, which is an amazing site that has scientifically proven sound to focus, and it really does work. A lot of people use brain.fm. I know my mentor uses that. I just signed up and I've been using it for the deep breathing exercises. I haven't used it to focus yet, but a lot of people do use it for that. If you're a writer, there's a free thing that happens in multiple time zones at 8 a.m. around the world called Writer's Hour, writershour.com. And so they do an 8 a.m. writing session, which is absolutely amazing. Go, go, done is another great co-working resource if you're looking for virtual co-working. And last but not least, in order to hold me accountable and focus and just kind of like make my zillion tasks into just attainable handfuls, I use Kin, Kin Habit Tracker that was built by Justin Kahn who created Twitch. I use that in order to, um, to 
know that I'm doing the core things that I believe move me forward every day and to track those. Anyway, I hope that helps and enjoy the next episode. Bye. Celebrating women in tech around the world. So excited for our next guest coming at us from Los Angeles, Diana. Welcome to the show. Hi, thank you for having me. Really excited to be here. (laughs) Diana, to kick things off, go ahead and tell us a little bit about who you are and what you do. Yeah, well, a little bit of background on me. My name is Diana, and I've been in tech for about four years now, but I've been building communities both professionally and non-professionally for probably the past 10 years. So I know that's a really hot buzzword right now, but (laughs) there's a lot to be said about community, definitely. And I'm currently based in Los Angeles and uh, the head of community at this very interesting and small startup called Copy AI. Not sure if you've heard of it. Now, are you making a joke when you say small or is it still a really small team? Because Copy AI is making a huge splash on the Internet. So it's not really small, but maybe the team size is small. So is it a joke or not a joke? It is a joke, I guess. (laughs) I more so meant the team is very small for everything we have to do. But yes, we have been making a big splash on the Internet, which has been an interesting transition to say the least, considering the last job I had, no one knew the company I worked for and trying to build community like that was a very different experience where uh, I was more in the shadows and now front and center, I can't really hide anymore. (laughs) I'm curious in your journey being in tech, do you wanna hide or do you welcome the notoriety that comes with running community for an accelerating tech brand? I don't mind, I guess, the notoriety. It it just comes with different challenges and um, sacrifices, right? I think before I was working at this startup turned public company called UiPath, and most of the community were Fortune 500 companies or the developers there. And, you know, that type of attention is very insular and hidden and in private events and it just stays there. And that's a really cool experience in itself. Whereas like now the co-founders of Copy AI, Paul and Chris are really big on Twitter. So that's a global audience every single day, right? So (laughs) uh, anytime I plug something on, they're retweeting it. And it's almost like overwhelming just because I have less control than I used to, but it opens up new doors that I never had previously. So it's definitely interesting. (laughs) A flip of the switch. Let's walk through your journey, but let's kind of do it backwards. What does your day-to-day look like? It's never the same, so that's probably why I'm in this type of profession. Uh, You know, having a community role is never about consistency. Excuse me. There's different types of consistency. I think you have to show up, be present, and be around and available, and that type of consistency is really valued. But I think the projects, programs, and relationship building – has to be on a constant cycle, you know? So maybe I don't really do it by the day, but maybe Mondays are like my partnership outreach days. And then Tuesdays are my platform engagement days on the community platforms because, you know, it's kind of awkward if I'm constantly blasting them every day, right? (laughs) And maybe Wednesdays are my event days. Actually, Wednesdays are the days I've been doing going to meetups and stuff. And in 
introducing myself, I guess, to other um, community members, especially during this welcome back to the world after COVID time. So <laughs> you just have to keep it as an ongoing cycle. And I would say my weeks are more consistent than my days, if that makes sense. <laughs> It's interesting. I batch up my days too. Like Mondays is a particular type of meeting, but not really, but I'll have meetings. Then Tuesday is my no meeting and focused on operations day. Wednesday is my official meetings day. Thursday and Friday are my podcast interview days. And so on Mondays and Tuesdays is typically like when I'm doing management or um, editing anything from the YouTube channel to overseeing the podcast episodes that, that our editing team does. Like like every day I'm fo- – and then I also work on the weekends. And every single day I – I make space to prioritize self-care and I work on the weekends because it's like a creative endeavor. Like podcasting to me is me being an artist, writing is being an artist. So even though this is my work too, it's also how I express myself creatively. So yeah, batching, huge. (laughs) That's amazing. Not everybody knows what copy AI is. So what is copy AI and how should we be using it? Definitely. So Copy AI is a startup that launched around nine months ago. Uh, It started with our co-founders, Paul and Chris, where basically uh, they were very into GPT-2, GPT-3 coming out. And there's a lot of traction across the internet and the world about what the, the models that OpenAI was developing. So with the private beta access to OpenAI's uh, models, it launched a whole wave of GPT-3 startups to start, you know, coming up and a very niche type of startup in the world of, you know, SaaS and (laughs) software as well. So, and what GPT-3 is, it's natural language processing models where it can create human-like text. And so I believe it was originally for the use case of coding or, you know, you can, the computer can generate new types of code and you know, software engineers can take the backseat a little bit, but a more practical everyday use case, uh, which is what Copy AI is achieving, is marketing copy or writing in general. So, for example, what you can do on our website, we have around 95 tools. We're about to hit 100, I think, of different prompts in which you can input something. So you could put a product description. So we could put uh, women in tech. Uh, Esprit's podcast <laughs> and say um, weekly podcast based about women in tech, you know, conquering the world. And it'll spit out 10 different versions of saying that and it'll add things. And, you know, since your podcast is public, it probably will pull things from the internet and already have some information you wouldn't have expected on there, right? The company started to take off because uh, the co-founders were very public about all of their numbers on Twitter. So their monthly recurring revenue, the user acquisition, just the quick traction was really amazing for, I think, a lot of tech Twitter, the tech community in general to see that. And so with their growing MRR, they decided to expand the team. But then what they realized is they need someone to deal with their big community online, of not just that many users, but also the fans of just the company itself. So it's a little bit of background on Copy AI. And you're based in LA, but Copy AI, where's Copy AI based? 
So we're a fully distributed team. Not even our co-founders live in the same city, <laughs> which is interesting. We are in LA, SF, Houston, Austin, Memphis, New York, Cleveland, and Salt Lake City. So, and I, uh, Vancouver, sorry, <laughs> uh, in Canada. So we are actually planning our retreat right now. Uh, that was the call I had earlier today. We're having an in-person team retreat in about seven weeks. So I'm really excited to actually meet the team in person. We're going to San Diego, so not too far <laughs> for me. <laughs> but for everyone else, it's a great <laughs> beach vacation, I think, <laughs> coming from different parts of the States. Working on a distributed team, the culture that it takes to have a cohesive distributed remote team can be tricky. What are the advantages or disadvantages working remotely? And and like, what's some insider point of view as we're like going through a journey, maybe we're founders of companies thinking about like keeping things remote and maybe we're looking to get a job and we're thinking, do we want to work remotely or do we want to work in-house? What are some insights that you could give us to help us make those decisions? Yeah, great question. So uh, I have it from a dual experience. My last role, uh, my manager was based in Europe. So I saw her like twice a year uh, at most. <laughs> and the, the rest of my team was in Europe and India, and I was the only American on the team. So that was challenging in which I was waking up at 5, 6 a.m. for calls. And I don't miss that at my new role since we're mostly in Pacific and Eastern Standard Time. But uh, it, it definitely humbled me, I think, in terms of how to work with, it's not just personality type, but different working culture is I think the biggest challenge for a company that's globally distributed that still works together on the day-to-day. So at Copy AI, since we're primarily in the United States, the working culture friction is not there as much since uh, you know any country and even region, you could argue, has more or less working standards or <laughs> etiquette. But I think something that we, we could definitely improve on as a team is maybe the serendipity of like, oh, hey, let's just have a chat and and talk about stuff that isn't work. Because every every call that we do have is really, you know, down to business and cross-collaboration. But something I've been suggesting, there's this new type of video format called spatial audio. Have you seen that? Like Gather Town or Kumo Space? Yes, I have Gather Town, and I actually was a speaker at a Red Bull event, and they used spatial audio. They rebuilt my physical podcast studio in a spatial environment. It was amazing. Oh, I love that. Yeah, I think I think that's really cool, and it works if it's a contained environment, like you know the people attending, or more or less the type of people attending. Of course, for like a team, that's perfect to intermingle because now. We're still a small team, in my opinion. We're about to have 12 team members. We can no longer be on one Zoom call and stare at each other. You know what I mean? We got to like <laughs> move about a little bit, split up without it being like breakout rooms, you know? And I think that introduces like a new concept of virtual happy hour or mixer. But I do think uh, co-living will be very popular, not amongst team members, but I think as tech employees continue to do that uh, or work remotely, organizing these little hacker houses or joint living across cities or even in remote areas, I would imagine will take off significantly in the next few years. Where do you find community in working remotely? 
because you're kind of isolated. You're you're the person in Los Angeles. So how do you find your tech community here when they're not here? <laughs> yeah, it's been, it's definitely been something I've been figuring out myself, to be honest. I think there's been two major things that have had a significant impact on that. Fortunately, in the past few months, there has been an emerging LA tech Twitter scene. I mean, I know LA tech was already a thing, but like younger, maybe right out of college uh, (laughs) tech Twitter scene that's been emerging because I think a lot of people right out of college are in the same, a similar boat, just different stages, right? Like they're like, we just graduated college. We just got a job, but we don't have an office to go to. Like, how am I supposed to meet up and like, you know, make new friends? So I've definitely been plugged into that and gone to quite a few events, meeting other founders, startup operators, investors, and whatnot. And it mimics the office environment, obviously not in an office, maybe at a bar or a venue, but similar language of what to talk about, right? (laughs) Um, Even if they may not know what copy AI is, or if they're not a community manager or organizer, um, you know, speaking the the language of tech is, is definitely there. That's been really great on on a local in-person level. I think the other thing that's really been interesting to do is I've sort of seen Clubhouse as like my water cooler talk. I know it sort of died down since earlier this year, but I've definitely seen a good amount of pop-in conversations throughout the day or just catching people when they're free or even just tuning into a subject I'm curious about, like it doesn't even have to be something that necessarily professionally develops me, I guess. But, you know, I'm just like curious, you know, because in some of the smaller rooms, there's actually really insightful and interesting things happening. And so that helps me sort of like listen in, be present, I guess, even if I don't speak. And I've, I've enjoyed that. And I think people would be more open to it, especially since, there's no video and you can just like pop in, pop out. Yeah. I mean, for those of you who don't understand Clubhouse or don't know Clubhouse yet, I was actually the face of Clubhouse, which is wild. I was on Clubhouse when it had like under 10,000 people on the app and now it's got millions and zillions and millions around the world. And I've been doing podcast classes on Clubhouse since I was new to Clubhouse and I've been doing them every week and I and it's free and you just go. Actually, Shout out to myself, Esprit.club, to know when my next class is. And thank you to Spore for building that site for me. But yeah, like I just do them every week. And so if you're looking to know how to podcast, you plug in. And so that's what Diana's talking about. Anything, if she wants to be part of like a writing class or community or discussion, like anything that you want to explore in any kind of topic, in any kind of way, like Clubhouse has an auditory social network to cater to that. So if right now I'm like, I really want to learn about crypto and I don't know where to get started, I just like go on Clubhouse. And obviously you have to filter through who's actually an expert versus who's not. But it's an amazing wealth of resource for anything. Yeah, I would agree. The last podcast I was actually on, I talked about Clubhouse at <laughs> in a way that I kind of saw similarities between Clubhouse and meetup.com, where you kind of like find your weird little niche interest and sort of just like open to it. You know what I mean? And I've made quite a few friends that have met up IRL (laughs) uh, from, you know, just hanging out on Clubhouse. And 
it's definitely different, different than even a Twitter meetup, I would say. And it's a little chaotic because, you know, it takes a certain type of person to talk all day on the phone. <laughs> but I've, it's definitely <laughs> really, really had a big impact in my life. And um, as it continues to grow, I'm excited to see where it's headed. But I've definitely enjoyed and had some interesting situations happen <laughs> talking to to people on Clubhouse. Yeah, that's how Clubhouse flows. But it is interesting that this particular social networking app does lead culturally, it seems, to offline relationships. Like I have not met one person who is part of the Clubhouse community who hasn't developed really amazing relationships and met those people in real life, like including me. So it's it's really – in, and I don't think you really find that with other social networks. It doesn't usually lead to meeting someone in person, at least not quickly. And the turnaround going from talking on the app to meeting in person is is pretty quick. But pivoting back to you and away from, from, from Clubhouse, let's go into your journey. First of all, when did you discover Copy AI? Like, and what attracted you to want to become part of the team? Yeah, so they found me actually. So this is a, it is quite an interesting story. I actually have only been on Twitter for about five months. And so I missed the whole November, October launch of Copy AI. I had no idea what it was until they reached out to me. So the reason why I made a Twitter actually was because I had just won an award for my work uh, doing community work. And I was like, oh, I should probably like connect with people around the same time as when I joined Clubhouse. So I was like, okay, this is perfect. I, like, this is the social media because I didn't want to give out my Instagram. I thought it was a little too personal, you know? So I was like, okay, Twitter is fine for my like professional endeavors. And so because I was heavily using Clubhouse, you know, the way word was traveling so fast back in February, uh, right after Elon joined the, or spoke on the platform, it was an intense moment in time. I think anyone that was there at that time knows what I'm talking about, <laughs> where like every yes. second of the a day you're on deprivation. <laughs> <laughs> yes, a lot of chaos. And so I think with that, I was meeting a lot of new people in tech um, and, you know, talking on Twitter, you know, and uh, through that, people were tagging me and stuff, I guess. They're like, who's in community or like, who does community work? And uh, the CMO, Blake, he found me and he cold DM'd me saying, hey, love the work you're doing. We're looking into hiring a head of community for Copy AI. Like, I'd love to chat a little bit more. I was really hesitant because, one, I didn't know what the company was. And then, two, that term is being, like, thrown around a lot. Like, what community means, like, head of community. And I didn't want it to be, like, an entry-level position for where I'm at in my career. And so... I was like, you know, let me just like have the intro conversation. You never know, because I was also working at a company that was about to IPO at that time. So it's kind of like, like, what do I do? You know what I mean? So I had the conversation with Blake and then I checked out the tool and my jaw dropped. I typed in literally uh, Memorial Day deals flying to Greece and Santorini. And it was like, you know, Instagram ad. And then like 10 different versions of that spit out. And I was like, oh my God, this is going to change the world. Like this is actually insane. And the fact you can do it in any language, I think we're currently at around 30 languages, but that will obviously expand very quickly. Um, I was like, this is going to impact not just people to enable them to write more, but this is going to impact so many different 
professionals across countries worldwide, which is something that's of personal importance to me, especially at my previous role, working with international colleagues every single day. And I was the de facto editor because I was only a native English speaker. After that, I had a chat with the co-founders, Paul and Chris, and it definitely became clear that this was a really cool startup to work at. And at the time, they were only five people or like four people. <laughs> and now we're at 11, almost 12. I think our next hire is starting in a couple weeks. Uh, and then they they gave me the offer letter and I was I started the week before um, the last company to work for IPO. So it was a very crazy time for me because there was obviously a lot of buildup to something I'd been working on for years. And then um, the IPO moment was really great, moving into a new startup, which is like peak. And then it's not a low to start at a startup, but like the scale was so different. And, you know, <laughs> I've had uh, this, yeah, the scale is just so different. And I ha- I really have to thank social media for that because I didn't know that was possible. Like, I really only have a LinkedIn. That's the only place people can find me on the internet, but now they can find me on Twitter. Uh, just because, like I mentioned earlier, I never needed those kinds of things. Like, I, I just didn't know, what, I didn't need that, I guess. And now all this, like every single week, people are reaching out about community stuff. Um, so it's overwhelming, but exciting. I think this would help everybody. One, shout out to Blake. I think it's at Hey Blake on Twitter, or is it at, at Hey Blake email? I, I can't remember. Is it at Hey Blake? It's at Hey Blake, I think, yeah. <laughs> 100% follow Blake. His tweets are like educational experiences. <laughs> Like, it's just everyone is bookmarkable. It's amazing. Um, So I'm a huge fan of the value in his Twitter. I think this would help everybody. What is the difference between a social media community coordinator or manager versus a community manager? Because I find it surprising to use the word community, but not be on Twitter. And and, like, I, I could tell... Community to you doesn't necessarily mean social media. And I think that that would enlighten a lot of people what the differences are and what kind of opportunities exist out there. Yeah, I love that question. It'll definitely be a hot take, I think, to some people because uh, a lot of social media managers do use the term community manager. And I, I don't necessarily think that's wrong either. It's just the path that I've been on in more or less like tech community. It's it's very different. So I think a social media manager or social media community manager engages with the comments and like creates content, but then that then they would say, oh, that's a content manager, you know, or a content creator. But when I think of a community manager for, especially for a tech company, it's a blend between program, project, partnership, and event management. So what I mean, programs, I mean, st- something of a cadence, right? Like monthly engagements, depending whatever that may be. Like I had a power user program at my last role where we met, had a monthly sync. I prepped them for two to three engagements per, per quarter since they were evangelists. I would say project management because you're kind of thrown the special projects. You know what I mean? Like, oh, hey, we're going to do this like nonprofit charity event. And this is for our community. Like, okay, <laughs> that's going to take up six weeks of my time. So like, you know, sort of balancing those projects out outside of, you know, what you're doing consistently. Partnership management. Um, a lot of organizations will reach out to you and establish partnerships, whether that's discounts or agreed upon event engagements, partnership capacities. 
And event management, obviously, for in-person events, which didn't, hasn't happened for about a year and a half now, but it's, it's on the come up. And of course, like virtual events as well. And I would say the last one that I got to touch on, which had an aspect to social media, but it was actually content management. Like I ran our blog. Uh, so content creators, we did have a podcast, but that was actually run by our community, which is really cool at UiPath. But um I think content management can be a, like part of that too. So I know that sounds like five different jobs in one, which it definitely is. But I mean, that's the startup life is to have multiple jobs in one. Exactly, exactly. And but also when you're dealing with a community, they're not going to have something for you every day. You know, you have to think of, and recognize this is extracurricular to a person's everyday life. So with that what they contribute will also not, you know, it's going to have its own cycle and it all balances out. So I want to get into your background, but before we segue into your, your background, the last little piece I want to touch on is with this new technology of AI writers, where does authenticity meet AI writing? (laughs) What are your thoughts on that? I love this question. It's very much a discussion, I think, and it'll be a discussion for a very long time while it's being adopted. I think the biggest issue of today of any type of creative work is meeting the demand, right, of what you need to put out there. And I'm sure you can understand this of the many podcasts you run and many guest speakers and um, organizing all of that. But when you think about writers and more importantly, people that just have their own businesses and, you know, have to run a million other things. Writing is something that is a fundamental part of any type of business, any type of role. And we don't always have the time to do all of that. So I think there's two ways to look at it. There's writing is definitely an art. I will never doubt that. That is one of my favorite art forms. But then there's also writing as utility. And I think that you know, there's always going to be writing as utility, which you think of marketing copy and you think of, you know, social media copy or ads. Like, I wouldn't say those are life-changing, you know, phrases, <laughs> except for like, just do it or, you know, like slogans and taglines. But that's writing that a lot of people may not always have the immediate creativity to come up with or the skill set to do. And that can help enable people in many ways that they previously were not able to in the past. And then when it comes to authenticity, I think in regards to writing as an art form, a lot of the writers in our community have actually said the best part about having a tool like this is how it helps us brainstorm to have further inspiration of what to write about, right? And also, you no longer have to start off with a blank page, right? Like when you think of when we're in school, writing a research paper, the hardest part was writing the first paragraph, right? Like, my name is Diana Morgan. I am in fifth grade. <laughs> I have to write a book about the bluest eye. <laughs> this is my essay. Like, even just writing that, it was so painful enough, you know, <laughs> and to write something further beyond that for three pages. But with, you know, putting, let's say, just putting in a couple of phrases and themes and being able to just see things spit out at you that have similar correlation to the original input has been inspiration enough where people can write off of that or they can edit down or edit up whatever is spit out of it. So I definitely think there's a lot of authenticity there. It's just, it's a new tool. It's not a replacement. I want to get into how you discovered technology and when you first became 
passionate about the tech space? Uh, was it when you were a little girl or when did that happen for you? Yes. So I was always a child of the internet, I would say. <laughs> so I was actually explaining this to a friend this past weekend. I was not allowed to watch TV until I was like a teenager. And I very rarely watched movies or TV. So when I got a laptop at 14, I think that <laughs> was like the gateway drug, I think, to the internet. <laughs> Finding out like what really exists, you know, outside of school and like activities, right? That was a good time, I think. <laughs> catching up on 90s sitcoms that I never watched as a kid and, you know, catching up to American culture, I guess you could say. Um, but I, I never, I always loved social media. I was a big Tumblr person back in the day, but like early 2010s, arguably like 2009 when that started. And I think that was my first look into the world in a different way than just like how I was raised because you're interacting with different people. And it wasn't like Facebook at that time, early Facebook, where you're just connecting with your school friends or family and stuff like that. Um, so that always like kept me informed and whatnot. But I think the real pivotal moment for me was actually before I moved into tech, I worked in real estate. So this was five years ago in 2016. I was put on a project in New York to open up a brand new co-working building. So at that time, that was when WeWork had its hyper expansion, you know, across the globe of like, do what you love or like, we love, we work, we whatever, <laughs> you know? And so co-working was I have really, the t-shirt, yeah. Uh, <laughs> oh, you do, you do, okay. <laughs> then yeah, so if this was an independent family-owned business, it was not by no means we work whatsoever, but I was in the co-working industry, I guess, while it was very small and, I had to set up this co-working building in Brooklyn and it was a really cool real estate development project. And when we opened, I was a community manager. So I did all the programming events, you know, and selling the offices. So I guess I always have jobs where I'm not doing the same thing every day, right? <laughs> every hour even. And so, but ironically at the same time in 2017, end of 2017, that was when Bitcoin hit 20,000, which is so weird to say today where that's a, even a different story, but back then that was history. And within the next couple of months, 12 different crypto and blockchain startups moved into our co-working building. So that was fascinating in itself because I had no idea what they were talking about. Like they were talking about ICOs and they weren't talking about NFTs yet, but they were talking about ICOs, wallet launches, like Ethereum, like crazy. They were not Bitcoin maps, maximalists. It was just a lot. And I, I did a lot of the programming because that attracted new tenants, you know, but it introduced me to like, this sounds like something that was probably in the nineties or a movement going on before the internet happened. Do you know what I mean? And like, it definitely piqued my interest. And I'm kicking myself in the foot. I should have invested or did more stuff back then where I'm at today, you know, as I actually am going back a little bit into the crypto world. But, you know, being exposed to that uh, really showed me the impact as well of what tech had outside of what real estate could offer me. So I was getting really tired of being fixated to one place. And because I didn't work for a company like WeWork, I didn't get the chance to understand scale. Like if I worked at a WeWork, I could oversee multiple locations or a region or do like global strategy, depending on what community meant to them, I guess. But it was just one space and it was cool. And But I also felt like I need to take the next step. And to me, the tech industry provided 
many things that I wanted of where I wanted to go in my career of scale, different locations, global work, and yeah, traveling about and doing all those fun things. So that was definitely the (laughs) opening that door. (laughs) And here I am today. What would you say is the one piece of guidance you've had, like advice that has really helped propel you forward? So I think the biggest piece of advice my friend gave me, I met her at my last company. She told me that there are three types of people in this world. There are givers, there are takers, and there are matchers. She's like, I learned this in grad school. And I was like, I don't think you need grad school to learn this. (laughs) But uh, she said, Diana, you are a giver and people take things from you. You only attract takers because you're a giver. And she's like, you know, the only people that stop that? People like me who are matchers. She's like, I don't do anything unless they match me. Or like if I do something and if they match me, I'll continue. Otherwise, I won't. And it was definitely a tough pill to swallow for me because even though it seems so simple, I didn't really understand what that meant until I worked for a larger company where sometimes even if you worked harder, it didn't always mean that it mattered, if that makes sense. And I realized a lot of the ways that I worked, I was actually distracting myself because I was helping others. And even though I was doing good work, it wasn't tied to my performance or the way that I was like projecting or doing all all of that. So I think that's that was probably the best piece of advice I got because it completely changed my framework in understanding working world, not like personal relationships of how do I best manage a relationship and two, how do I best manage my productivity and output without like, you know, burning out essentially. So I'm a giver as well. So I've thought a lot about this. And and the three things your friend said is, I, I believe it's also in the book, Go Giver, if I remember right. And I definitely haven't mastered it. But what I've been kind of coming to terms with, because I'm not a matcher, and I actually don't want to be a matcher, because I don't want to give expecting something in return. I think that something inauthentic starts to form there for me. But like, I think it's extremely important that givers are having a, a really healthy relationship with boundaries. I just think that that is just like essential. Have you heard of the book? Is it Essentialism? I think it's Essentialism. Have you heard of that book? I haven't. So my mentor recommended it to me and I'm listening to it right now. So I should like confidently know the title, but I don't. I'm pretty sure it's Essentialism. I literally like before our interview was like listening to it on my on my audio thing. But it's great. What what the author is teaching me is to always ask ourselves, like, is this what we want to be doing with our time? I think the whole relationship with setting boundaries and having a really great, healthy rapport with boundaries because before I would look at boundaries like oh my gosh but I want to give I want to love I want to this but what happens is we do end up being burnt out so like I find that this concept that I'm learning about right now about essentialism and changing my framework about boundaries so boundaries isn't like I mentioned earlier I do these podcast classes once a week I get like a bazillion people who message me every day. Hey, can you just jump on a phone real quick to tell me how to podcast? Like every single day, all day long. And so putting in place like, here's 
here's my boundaries. Here's what I do for free, which are these like weekly clubhouse classes. And here's how to work with me on a one-on-one. And here you go. You choose what's right for you. And now I'm not not being a giver. Like this is the boundary that I set so I can be okay too. But if I just endlessly give to like everything and never say no to anything, then I'm left ragged and burnt out. And so, yeah. I feel that. There's a friend I made recently that should probably listen to what you said because I've been trying to tell him you need boundaries and like you need to just say no. And even if you're not saying no, just recognize what you're willing to do and what you don't want to do. And that will settle things in itself. But yes, I'm also getting to the point where I'm like, so many people are reaching out to me about community advice and I want to help, but I don't know if I should start like consulting a fee surrounding this because it's just getting to the point where it's taking away from my job or like, you know, they're, (laughs) it's more than just, it's like a, it's like, actually consulting, you know? So it's been interesting. And you could even have like once a month or once a quarter, you could have like an open office hours powered by like Crowdcast or some like webinar platform and, or Clubhouse, Clubhouse, like I, whatever is right for you, whatever technology is right. And have that community hour once a month and that's where you share but if they don't want to wait for the month or they want your one-on-one attention then it's a consultation fee I agree I'm gonna have to work on that next probably (laughs) setting up a website is probably the first one I shockingly don't have one and then two this is my consultation fee (laughs) oh and for setting up a website check out Spore it's amazing and if you want an introduction let me know it makes setting up a website so effortless. It's it's not a Squarespace. It's just like it's it's even easier. It's like it it just it gives you something clean and nice and to the point, and you could just stay focused on my, like ah spore. It's amazing. So let me know if you'd like an introduction there. What is one huge obstacle you've successfully overcome, and how did you overcome it in your career? I would say that, okay, this is a story I don't very, share very often, mostly because it's definitely on more on the serious side. So when COVID happened last year, started last year, I should say, in March 2020, obviously all the work I had done of building in-person community for a tech company <clears throat> fell apart <laughs> very quickly. <laughs> and so I, I had to figure out digital yeah, digital community building strategies, like how do we still engage people and perform without, you know, having the same impact of uh, in-person, which is very different. And one of the biggest challenges, it wasn't even that big of a challenge, but it definitely reframed things into how I look at the world and how to keep a community safe was uh, this was the time around Zoom bombing when that was happening for like a good couple of weeks. And so I hosted a virtual event and yeah, <laughs> I hosted a virtual event for a group in Indianapolis um, surrounding UiPath around automation. And it was going well for about 30 minutes. And uh, before we knew it, there was a hacker that took control of the screen and started sharing um, the most the worst type of content, I I just don't even want to mention it, onto the screen. And I couldn't even stop it until I forced closed the entire event. It was so bad. And before I know it, the speaker called me like sobbing, crying uh, because he was that scarred. And he said he had to go to church. And 
it was just a very dark moment. Even though there was only like 20 people in the Zoom call, it was just something you would never think about at an in-person event. You know what I mean? Like you think of security maybe when you think about in person, like, you know, going up the elevators or, you know, having security at the door or something like that. But I don't think there was ever, there was not really like digital virtual event security just yet, you know? (laughs) And I took the rest of the week off because I was just really thrown for a loop of what had happened. And it really struck a big chord with me that people are that evil on the internet at times as well to sort like literally ruin people's days and scar them. But it was also a moment where it made me realize, like, obviously I could have never prevented that or, like, you know, tried. Uh, I did the right thing of just, like, shutting the event down because, fortunately, you could just do that at a virtual event, like, end meeting for all. But it it really made me think about how do we protect people and how, especially if we live virtual lives more or less from now on, how do we engage with people that is still safe but does not, you know, when we translate more and more into virtual worlds, we need to establish more etiquette and boundaries as well that will be very different so that things like that never happen again. Obviously, it was like a video call and like very different. And it was also a work setting, which made it worse. (laughs) But, you know, it's not like Zoom did anything about it. Like I reported it and my IT team had like no remorse. They're just like, well, it happened. It's just like, well, yeah, but like I am forever scarred from this, you know. And so, yeah, I think... There's a lot more for, yeah, where the world should define, like, what do we think of digital privacy, digital security, um, how we look at how to engage with people on the internet. Like, I know trolling can be fun, I guess, (laughs) at times in a very small set of people that actually know each other. But the way that we show up in person in certain aspects should translate how we show up online. And that was a big, big moment that changed my perspective. Wow. It also sucks that Zoom wasn't more compassionate to your experience. I mean, that just drives me crazy about the lack of customer service in our world with a lot of companies. I understand them from the place of like, they're just a platform. But, you know, there are things that you can do as a platform to protect others, too. So, But you don't hear those stories as much today, obviously, because there's been different type of preparation. It was just like one of those moments in time where no one knew what they were doing, then those there are those gaps where something can happen, you know, and that just happened to be one of those gaps. Totally. Thank you so much for being open about that and vulnerable. Like, I really appreciate it. Diana, where can people connect with you to get to know you further? Yep. So I'm pretty active on Twitter and Clubhouse. And so it's the same username, grassroots. CMGR and CMGR is actually a short form for community manager. Um, so I think a lot of people never ask that, but I'm just going to say it <laughs> because <laughs> they just put in grassroots and they find me because, yeah, I think that's sort of what I'm all about. I'm all about like organic community building and from the ground up. Uh, I'm not a top down person. So, yeah, I thought my username should reflect that. And where can they find out more about Copy AI? Yes. So you can go onto our website, copy.ai. That's literally the website. (laughs) We also have a Twitter page uh, where you'll easily be able to find our co-founders, Paul Yacobian and Chris Liu, and the CMO, Blake Gamal, that we mentioned earlier. Um, So there's, there's more people to the team, but I would say the four of us are the more or less bigger evangelists uh, on Twitter of what we're doing and uh, where we're headed. 
And yeah, I think we have seven day free trials, so you can definitely try it out. Maybe you can title our podcast <laughs> with uh, one of the, maybe we should have a podcast tool actually on, on Coffee AI, but you can try it out for everybody we want. I think one of my favorite ones, tools, is the Clubhouse bio. Like we made a joke of like those super lengthy bios and you just put it in and just surprise the book comes out and but I would say some pretty useful ones was the resume one, resume builder, like just refilling in those bullet points, stuff like that. It's a fun, it's a fun tool. And other than copy AI, of course, what is a piece of software you recommend, a website or app? What is your go-to? Uh, I would definitely recommend Clubhouse. I know I mentioned it multiple times, <laughs> but I would say social audio in general. I'm very active on Twitter spaces and Clubhouse. And to me, it is the virtual networking that has not been utilized effectively yet. And it has significantly impacted my professional development and growth. I think that it mimics what people want and need out of virtual networking. If you think about lunch club or meetsy or other very formalized structured virtual networking it can't mimic like what you would do at an event but you can find that on twitter spaces and clubhouse so i'm excited to see where they take it but also excited to see new competitors do their own thing in terms of social audio and let's give a quick shout out you said lunch club and meetsy i actually don't know meetsy i know lunch club i'm on lunch club let's let's share with everyone what those two sites are yeah, so Lunch Club is targeted, I guess, targeted networking, um, depending on the industry or role you're looking to connect with. And uh, I believe they use some type of AI algorithm to match people up. And you can set your times times up kind of like Calendly, um, just put in the times that work for your calendar, and people will find a matching spot to connect with for 45 minutes. Meetsy is a newer platform, and Meetsy was just acquired by this founder I know, uh, Building Comsor, which is a community building platform. And Meetsy is similar to Lunch Club, but it lives within a community. I'm part of the community manager, Meetsy, because I talk to other community managers. It's a lot of fun. So I think that's really cool if you're building a professional community virtually right now to use a platform like that, since it will already have it'll be in bubble versus like lunch club is anyone in the world of any profession, <laughs> but Meetsy can be centered around like one central topic. Awesome. Diana, thank you so much for hanging out with the women in tech podcast. I had so much fun. <laughs> this is great. To connect and collaborate with more amazing women in tech around the world, remember, go to the Women in Tech Facebook group at womenintechvip.com. That's womenintechvip.com. Say hello on social at Women in Tech Show on Twitter, on Instagram, on Facebook. I will see you guys, talk to you guys, hear you guys in the next episode. Bye. Bye. Hey, everyone. This is Diana Morgan. I am the head of community at the startup called Copy AI, where we specialize in AI copywriting. I am based in Los Angeles, California, and you're listening to The Woman in Tech Show. The Women in Tech podcast is hosted and produced by me, Esprit Devora, With help from Janice Geronimo. Edited by Corey Jennings. Production and voiceover by Adam Carroll. And music from Jay Huffman Live and Epidemic Sound. The Women in Tech podcast is a wearetech.fm production. 
Thank you for being a listener of the Women in Tech podcast. To support the podcast and cheer us on, become an MVL Most Valuable Listener, go to womenintech.love, linked in the show notes.